Part two, chapter five of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. These events were on a Monday. The following Thursday, Nona came to see him at his office. She was announced through the speaking tube on his desk. Lady Tybar to see you, sir. Nona. But he was not really surprised. He had taken no notice of her letter. He had wanted to go up to Northrop's to see her, but he had not been. When two days passed, and he still prevented himself from going, he began to have the feeling, somehow, that she would come to see him. It was the third day that she was here, downstairs. "'Ask her to come up,' he said. She came in. She wore a pale blue sort of thing, a sort of black hat. He had considered it as an odd thing in his thoughts of since their meeting that though he could always have some kind of notion what other women were wearing he never could remember any detail of nona's dress but it was her face he always looked at she stood still immediately she was across the threshold and the door closed behind her she was smiling as though she felt herself to be up to some lark hello marco don't you hate me for coming in here like this it's jolly surprising that's another way of saying it now if you had said it was surprisingly jolly, well, shake hands, Marco, and pretend you're glad. He laughed and put out his hand, but she delayed response. She first slipped off the gauntlet she was wearing, and then gave him her hand. There, she said. It was as though she had now done something she much wanted to do, as one says, there, on at last sitting down after much fatigue. She tossed her gauntlets into a chair. She walked past him towards the window. "'You got my letter?' "'Yes.' Her face was averted. Her voice had not the bantering note with which she had spoken at her entry. "'You never answered it.' "'Well, i just seen you, just before I got it.' She was looking out of the window. "'Why haven't you been up?' "'Oh, I don't know. I was coming.' "'Well, I had to come,' she said. He made no reply. He could think of none to make.' She turned sharply away from the window and came towards him, radiant again, as at her entry. And in her first bantering tone, "'I know you hate it,' she smiled, resuming her first suggestion. "'Me coming here like this, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You always feel uncomfortable when you see me, Marco. I'd like to know what you thought when they told you I was here.' He started to speak. She went on. "'No, I wouldn't. I'd like to know just what you were doing before they told you.' Tell me that, Marco. I believe I wasn't doing anything, just thinking. Well, I like you best when you're thinking. You puzzle, don't you, Marco? You've got a funny old head. I believe you live in your old head, you know. Puzzling things, clever beast. I wish I could believe in mine, and she gave a note of laughter. Where do you live, Nona? I don't live. I just go on, she paused. Floatsome. Strange word to use, strangely spoken. It seemed to Sabre to drop with a strange, detached effect into the conversation between them. His habit of visualizing inanimate things caused him to see it were a pool between them at their feet. And from the word dropped into it, ripples that came to his feet upon his margin of the pool, and to her feet upon hers. He took the word away from its personal application. I believe it's rather that I was thinking about you when you came, Nona. About how we just got on. Floatsome. Don't you know on a river where it's tidal, or on a seashore at the turn, the mass of stuff you see there, driftwood and spent foam and stuff, just floating there, uneasily, 
brought in and left there from somewhere. And then presently the tide begins to take it, and it's drawn off and moves away and goes somewhere, arrives and floats and goes. That's mysterious, Nona. She said swiftly, as though she were stirred. Oh, Marco, yes, that's mysterious. Do you know sometimes I've seen drift like that, and I felt, oh, I don't know, but I've put out a stick and drawn in a piece of wood, just as the stuff was moving off, just to save it being carried away into, well, into that, you know. Have you, Nona? She answered. Do you think that's what life is, Marco? It's not unlike, he said, and he added, except about someone coming along with a stick and drawing a bit into safety. I'm not so sure about that. Perhaps that's what we're all looking for. He suddenly realized he was back precisely at the thoughts his mind had taken up on the morning he had met her, but with a degree more of illumination. Two feelings came into his mind, the second hard upon the other and overriding it, as a fierce horseman might catch and override one pursued. He said, It's rather jolly to have someone that can see ideas like that. And then the overriding, he said with astonishing roughness, But you, you aren't floatsome. How can you be floatsome? The life you've taken. And lo, if he had struck her, and she had been bound, defenseless, and with her eyes entreating not to be struck again, she could not deeper have entreated him than in the glance she reflected from her eyes, the quiver of her lids that first released then veiled it. It stopped his words. It caught his throat. He got up quickly. I say, Nona, never mind about thinking. I'll tell you what's been doing. Rotten. Happened just after I met you the other day. The dust on these roads, she said. She touched her eyes with her handkerchief. What, Marco? Well, old Fortune promised to take me into partnership about an age ago. Marco, he ought to have done it an age ago. What's there rotten about that? Her voice and her air was as gay as when she had entered. The rotten thing is that he's turned it down. At least practically he has. He, he told her of the twining and fortune incident. Pretty rotten of old fortune, don't you think? Old friend. Old fiend, said Nona. Old trout? Sabre laughed. Good word, trout. The men here all say he's like a whale. They call him Jonah. And he told her why. She laughed gaily. Marco, how disgusting you are! But I am sorry, I am, poor old Marco. Of course it doesn't matter, a horse-reddish, what an old trout like that thinks about your work. But it does matter, doesn't it? I know how you feel. They had an author-man at a place we were staying at the other day, Maurice Ash, and he told me that although he says it doesn't matter, and knows it doesn't matter, when absolutely trivial person says something riling about any of his stuff, still it does matter. He said a thing you've produced out of yourself you can't bear to have slighted. Not by the butcher. Gladys Oaklevy made us laugh. Maurice Ash said to her, It's like a mother's child. Look, look here, you're a countess, he said to her. You oughtn't to mind what a butcher thinks of your children, but supposing the butcher said your infant Henry was a stupid little brat, what would you do? Gladys said she'd dash a best end of the neck straight into his face. Sabre laughed. Yes, that's the feeling. But of course, all these books, he indicated the shelves, aren't mine, not my children, more like my adopted children. She declared it was the same thing, more so in a way. You've invented them, haven't you? Called them out of the vasty deep sort of thing and brought them up in the way they should go. I do think that's rather fine, Marco. 
She was at the shelves, scanning the books. Her fond, her most tender sympathy made him, too, feel that it was rather fine. Her light words in her high, clear-toned voice exactly his feelings toward the books. Talking with her was, in the reception and return of his thoughts, nearer to reading a book that delighted him than to anything else with which he could compare it. There was the same interchange of ideas, not necessarily expressed, the same creation and play of fancy, imagined, not stated. Her hands were moving about the volumes. Pulling out a book here and there, she mused the titles. Greek Unseens, Greek Unseens, Verse. Latin Unseens, Verse. Marvelous Person, Marco. The Shell Algebra. The Shell Latin Grammar. The Shell English Literature. The Shell Modern Geography. That's a series. The Shell, eh? I do call that a good idea. The Six Terms Chemistry. The Six Terms Geology. Yes, that's another series, he said. He was standing beside her, delightful at this. His pride in his work thrilled anew. You see the idea of the thing. Gives the boy the feeling of something definite to get through in a definite time. She was reading one of the prefaces, signed with his initials. Yes, that's ever so good. I see what you've written here. Avoiding the formidable and unattractive wilderness in that new textbook commonly presents to the pupil's mind. I call that jolly good, Marco. I call it awfully good. Fancy you sitting here and thinking out all those ideas. Or do you think them out at home? Do you talk them out with Mabel? He thought of Mabel's expression. Those lesson books, he lied. Oh, yes, pretty often. Show me which was the first one of all, the one you began with. He showed her. Fancy, she handled it. How fearfully proud of it you must have been, Marco. And Mabel, wasn't she proud? The very first. She called it dear thing, and returned it to its place with a little pat, as of affection. He turned away. Oh, well, that's enough, he said. She moved about the room, touching things, looking at things. Show me something else. Is that where the old trout basks? Can he hear us? I'm glad I've seen your room, Marco. I shall imagine you puzzling in here. Touching things, looking at things. He thought the room would always look different after this. He felt strangely disturbed. He could, with difficulty, reply to her. His mind drew back in its habit. Some dim association where he had felt in some degree as he was feeling now. When? Certainly had felt it before. When? He remembered. It was a Saturday in the first of the month of his first term at Tidborough School when his father had come over to see him. The loneliness of newness was still upon him. He had been affected almost to tears by being with someone whose mind was open, as it were, for him to jump into, someone to whom he could open his mind, unseal the home thoughts, unlock the timid tongue. He had talked, how he had talked. He had felt bursting to talk, and only talking could ease the feeling, and how it had eased. Yes, this was the same again. He did not want her to go. He wanted to talk, how he wanted to talk, to tell, unseal, unlock, expose. He said, I'll tell you what, Nona, I'll tell you something. I've an idea sometimes of cutting out from all this place and starting an educational publishing business on my own. She was enormously interested. Oh, Marco, if only you would. Well, I think about it, I do. 
I can see a biggish thing in it. The Tidborough Press, I'd call it. Like the University Press, you know, Oxford and Cambridge. By Jove, it might go any distance, you know. Oh, you must, you must. He began to pour out the tremendous and daring scheme. He talked animatedly, these long pent-up enthusiasms. She attended, rapt and gleamy-eyed, following him with most delicious yes, yes, and with little nods. And he suddenly became aware of how poignant to him was the sympathy of her interest, and it stopped. Thus to pour out, thus to be heard, was to experience the exquisite pain that comes with the sudden relief of intolerable pain, as when an anodyne steals through the veins of torture. He stopped. He could not bear it. "'Well, that's all,' he said. She declared, "'It's splendid! How well you're doing, Marco! I knew you would!' she paused not that that matters she said he asked her what do you mean not that that matters she made a little face at him marco you're not going to snap me up like that i've noticed it two or three times i mean it doesn't matter what a man does it's what he is that matters he laughed well that lets me down pretty badly if that's the estimate i'm awful you know she shook her head oh you're not so bad you don't know me I've been growing awful these years. Tell me how awful you are. Does Mabel think you're awful? You ask her. I'm the most unsatisfactory sort of person it's possible to meet, really. Go on. Tell me, Marco. I like this. What, like hearing how unsatisfactory I am? I like hearing you talk. You've got a rather nice voice. I used to tell you that, didn't I? And I like hearing you stumbling about trying to explain your ideas. You've got ideas. You're rather an ideary person. Go on. Why are you so... Why are you unsatisfactory? How familiar her voice was on that note. Caressing, drawing him on. He said, I'll tell you, Nona. I'm unsatisfactory because I've got the most infernal habit of seeing things from about twenty points of view instead of one. For other people, that's the most irritating thing you can possibly imagine. I've no convictions, that's the trouble. I swing about from side to side. I always see the other side of a case, and you know, that's absolutely fatal. She said gently, Fatal to what, Marco? He was going to say, To happiness. But he looked at her and then looked away. Well, to everything, to success. You can't possibly be successful if you haven't got convictions what I call bald-headed convictions. That's what success is, Nona, the success of politicians and big men whose names are always in the papers. It's that, seeing a thing from only one point of view and going all out for it from that point of view. Convictions. Not mucking about round a thing and seeing it from about twenty different sides like I do. You know, you can't possibly pull out this big, booming sort of stuff they call success if you're going to see anybody's point of view but your own. You must have convictions. Yes, and narrower than that, not convictions, but conviction. And you're right, and that everyone who thinks differently from you is wrong to blazes. He laughed, and I'm dashed if I ever think I'm right, let alone conviction of it. I can always see bits of right on the other side of the argument. That's me. Dash me. She said, Oh, go on, Marco. I like this. Well, that's all there is to it, Nona. These conviction chaps, these booming politicians and honorless chaps, these Bagshaw chaps, you know Bagshaw, 
They go on like a cannonball. They go like hell and smash through and stick when they get there. It's sort of like the footfalls you see down at the school punt about. Wherever there's a punt, I feel it and respond to it. My sort's out to be kicked, he laughed again. But I couldn't be any other sort, she said. I'm glad you couldn't be, Marco. You're just the same as you used to be. I'm glad you're the same. He did not reply. She sat briskly forward in the big armchair which faced him, making the motion of a movement as though throwing aside a turn the conversation had taken. Well, go on, Marco. Go on talking. I'm not going to let you stop talking yet. I love that about how people get success nowadays. It's jolly true. I never thought about it before. Yes, you're still a terribly thinky person, Marco. Go on. Think some more, out loud. Caressing, drawing him on, just as of old. He said thoughtfully, I'll tell you a thing I often think a lot about, Mona. You being here like this puts it in my mind. Conventions. She smiled teasingly. Ah, poor Marco. I knew you'd simply hate it, my coming like this. Does it seem terribly unconventional, improper to you, shut up with me in your office? He shook his head. It seems very nice. That's all it seems. But it does bring into my mind that you're the sort of person that does think twopence about what's usually done or what's not usually done. And that reminds me of things I've thought about conventions. Look here, Nona. This really is rather interesting. Yes, she said. Yes. Just so he used to bring ideas to her. Just so with, yes, yes, she used to receive them. But he went on. Why convention? You know, it's the most mysterious, extraordinary thing. It's a code society has built up to protect itself and to govern itself. And when you go into it, it's the most marvelous code that was ever invented. All sorts of things that the law doesn't give and couldn't give our conventions shove in on us in the most amazing way. And all probably originated by a lot of Mother Gertie-ish old type women. And that's so extraordinary. You know, if all the greatest legal minds of all the ages had laid themselves out to make a social code, they never could have got it anywhere near the rules these people have built up for themselves. And that's what I like, Nona. That's what I think is so interesting and the best thing in life. The things the people do for themselves without any state interference. That's what I'd encourage all I knew, how if I were a politician. He broke off. I say, aren't I the limit, gassing away like this? I hardly ever get off nowadays, and when I do, why don't you stop me? She made a little gesture depreciatory of his suggestion. Because I like to hear you. I like to watch your funny old face when you're on one of your ideas. It gets red underneath, Marco, and the red slowly comes up. Funny old face. Go on. I want to hear this because I'm going to disagree with you, I think. I think conventions, most of them, are odious, hateful, Marco. I hate them. He had been strangely affected by the words of her interruptions. A contradiction in the throat, a twitching about the eyes. But he was able, and glad that he was able, to catch eagerly at her opinion. Yes, yes, I know, odious, hateful, and much more than that, cruel. Conventions can be as cruel as, as cruel as hell. I was just coming to that. But they're all absolutely rightly based, Nona. That's the baffling and maddening part of them. That's what interests me in them. In their application, they're often unutterably wrong, cruel, hideously cruel, and unjust. But when you examine them, even at their cruelest, you can't help seeing that fundamentally they're absolutely right, unreasonable, and necessary. Look, take quite a silly example. 
There's a convention against going to church in any but your best clothes. It's easy to conceive wrongness in the application of it. It's easy to conceive a person wanting to go to church, and likely to benefit by going to church, but staying away because of feeling too shabby. But you can't help seeing the rightness at the bottom of it. The idea of presenting yourself decently at worship, as before princes. That makes you laugh. It doesn't, Marco. I can't see much worse things just on the same principle. He said pleasedly. Of course you can, can't you? Look at all this stuff there's been in the papers lately about what they call the problem of the unmarried mother. Now there's a brute of a case for you. A girl gets into trouble, and while she sticks to her baby, she's made an outcast. Every door is shut to her. Her own people will have nothing to do with her. No one will take her in, so long as she's got the baby with her. That's convention, and you can imagine cases where it's cruel beyond words. But it's no good cursing society about it. You can't help seeing that the conviction is fundamentally right and essential. Where on earth would you be if girls with babies could find homes as easy as girls without babies? He smiled. You'd have babies pouring out all over the place. See it? She nodded. I do think that's interesting, Marco. I think that's most awfully interesting. Yes, cruel and hateful and preposterous, many of them, but all fundamentally right. I think that's absorbing. I shall look out for conventions now. And when they annoy me most, I'll think out what they're based on. I will. Well, it's not a bad idea, he said. It helps all sorts of ways to think out things as they happen to you. You don't realize what a mysterious business life is till you begin to do that. And once you begin to feel the mysteriousness of it, there's not much that can upset you. You get the feeling that you're part of an enormous, mysterious game, and you just wonder what the last move means, eh? She did not answer. Presently she said, Yes, you still think things, Marco. You haven't changed a bit, you know. You're just the same. He smiled. Oh, well, it's only two years, you know. Less than two years since you went away. I wasn't thinking of two years. How many years were you thinking of? Ten. They just sat there. The incessant shrieking of a motor siren in the street below began to penetrate their silence. When it came to Sabre's consciousness, he had somehow the feeling that it had been going on a very long time. He jumped to his feet. The siren had the obscene and terrific note of a gigantic hen in delirium. What the devil's that? She received his question with the blank look of one of those whose mind had no idea of the question's reason. The strangled gurgle and the shriek from without informed her in paroxysms of hideous sound. With the motion of her body, as one shaking off dreams, she threw away the bemusement in which she had sat. She screwed up her face in torture. Oh, wow! Isn't it too awful? That's Tony, in the car. I told him I'd look in here. She glanced at the clock. Marco, it's one o'clock. I've been here two mortal hours. The gigantic hen screamed in delirious death agony. Oh, good heavens, that noise. She stepped to the window and opened the casement. Tony, that noise. Tony, for goodness sake. An extravagantly long motor car was drawn against the curb. Lord Tybar, in a dust coat and a sleek bowler hat of silver gray, sat in the driver's seat. He was industriously and without cessation winding the handle of the siren. An uncommonly pretty woman sat beside him. She was masked in furs. In her ear she held the index finger of each hand, her elbow sticking out on each side of her head. 
Thus severally occupied, she and Lord Tiber made an unusual picture, and a not inconsiderable proportion of youth and citizens of Tidborough stood around the front of the car and enjoyed the unusual picture they made. The spectators looked up at Nona's call. Lord Tybar ceased the handle and looked up with his engaging smile. The uncommonly pretty woman removed her fingers from her ears, and also turned upward her uncommonly pretty face. "'Hello!' called Lord Tybar. "'Did you happen to hear my sighs?' "'That appalling noise?' said Nona. "'You ought to be prosecuted. "'If you had it next to you,' piped the uncommonly pretty lady, in an uncommonly pretty voice, "'it's like a whole ship being sick-sick together.' "'It's nothing of the kind,' protested Lord Tybar. "'It's the plaintive lament of a husband entreating his wife.' He directed his eyes further backward. "'Good morning, Mr. Fortune. Did you recognize my voice calling my wife? There were tears in it. Perhaps you didn't.' "'Good Lord,' said Sabre. "'There's old Fortune at his window. I'll come down with you, Nona.' As they went down, he asked her, "'Who's that with him in the car?' "'One of his friends, staying with us.' Something in her voice made it afterwards occur to him as odd as she spoke of one of his, not one of our, friends, but did not mention her name. Well, the whole of Tidborough knows where you've been, Nona. Lord Tybar greeted them. And a good place, too. He addressed the lady by his side. Pugo, look at those pulpits and things in the window. You never go to church. It'll do you good. That's a pulpit, that tall thing. They preach from that. The lady remarked, "'Thanks. I can remember it. At least I was married in a church, you know.' "'And, of course,' said Nona, "'you always remembered you're married, don't you?' Sabre quickly glanced at her, her tone cut across the frivolous exchanges with an acid note, so utterly unlike Nona. The thing was real, not imagined, and went further. The uncommonly pretty woman, addressed as Pugo, replied, "'Oh, always. And so do you, don't you, dear?' and her uncommonly pretty eyes went in a quick glance from Nona's face to Sabre's, where they hovered in the fraction of a moment, and thence to Lord Tybar, where they also hovered, and smiled. And Lord Tybar, his small, handsome, head slightly on one side, looked from one to another with precisely that mock in his glance that Sabre had noticed, and transiently wondered at, on the day he had met them riding. Funny. But, Pugo, you don't know Sabre, do you? Lord Tybar said, "'Sabre, this is Miss Winfred, a woman of mystery. One mystery is how she ever won Fred, and the other is why she's called Pugo. There must be something pretty dark in her past to have got her a name like Pugo.' The woman of mystery shrugged her shoulders. "'Of course Tony's simply a fool,' she observed. "'You know that, don't you, Mr. Sabre?' "'It's not her face,' Lord Tybar continued. "'You might think it's her figure the way she hides it up all those furs on a day like this.' But a pug's figure, Nona broke in. I suppose we're going to start sometime? Will you come and sit here? Pugo inquired without making any movement. No, I'll sit behind. She got in. Goodbye, Marco. Her voice sounded tired. She gave Sabre her hand. Jolly the books, she said, and our talk. Now throw yourself in front, any boy who wants to be killed, Lord Tybar called to the idlers. No corpses today? He let in the clutch. Goodbye, Sabre. Goodbye. Goodbye. He waved his hand airily. The big car slid importantly up the street. Sabre watched them pass out of sight. As the car turned out of the precincts into High Street, a nasty corner, Lord Tybar, alone of the three, 
one hand on the steering wheel, half turned in his seat, and twirled the silver-gray bowler in gay farewell. Or mockery? End of chapter 5 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com